Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and wellstarthealth.com. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a vivid and visionary life. So today's guest is Olivia Kelly. Olivia is the CEO and co-founder of Wellstart Health, which is the fabulously amazing startup that I also co-founded. So everything I'm going to say about her and Wellstart Health is totally unbiased. <laughs> Olivia and I have been jet-setting this spring. We've attended healthcare-related conferences in exotic locations like Washington, D.C. and Raleigh, North Carolina. And because we are taking a systems approach to solving the chronic disease-fueled healthcare crisis, the conferences we attend are pretty diverse in goal, scope, and attendees. In fact, I'm almost positive that Olivia and I are the only elements in the intersection set of the World Health Care Congress, WHCC, and the Plant-Based Prevention of Disease Conference, PPOD which is odd, really, because both groups share the same overriding goals, improving health and rationalizing healthcare. But their agendas and their focus are on com two completely different planets, and those planets may be orbiting entirely different stars. The World Healthcare Congress focuses on the business of healthcare, the numbers, and they deal with issues like population health analytics, stop-loss insurance, direct contracting, value-based billing, reference-based pricing, and other really important concepts that have the same effect on normal people as like an equine dose of Ambien. While PPOD, the Prevention of Disease Conference, addresses the role of plant-based nutrition in mitigating, reversing, and preventing chronic disease and reducing the human and financial costs of healthcare. But these two universes don't meet very often. And so when Peapot ended, uh, I sat down with Olivia to talk about this chasm. We were in a, uh, a large echoey room, so you'll have to forgive a little bit of the poor audio quality. Everything's quite listenable. It just sounds like an Elton John concert, sort of, um, without the, the piano and um, the chasm and what we can do to, to bridge this chasm and to bring all these good people into alignment as we deploy our collective energy to solve this meth. Meth. Mess. Meth is part of the problem. Mess. We talk about the difference between primary care, which is one of the things the World Healthcare Congress folks love, and pre-primary care, a phrase that Olivia coined, and which basically means lifestyle, which the Peapod people love. 
We talk about the link between physical and mental health, about the difference between working with individuals and working with companies and health plans and about the widespread ignorance about the power of lifestyle to change individual health trajectories. And at the end, we talk about what Wellstart Health is currently up to and how, if you so choose, you can support our mission. Before we get there, quick word that Wellstart Health is opening up a new consumer-based cohort starting on Monday, June 3rd, 2019. And if you go to wellstarthealth.com slash program, you can read all about it. But we've got a special going on now. We made a deal with a company called Greater Goods that makes these really cool Bluetooth enabled blood pressure cuffs and scales. And they both integrate into the Wellstart Health platform, thanks to some amazing heavy lifting by our tech team led by John Salzarulo. And so not only do you get to tell us like what you've been up to as we go through the coaching program, but we can also look together at important health metrics, blood pressure and weight, and how they change over the course of the program. And you can get those right now absolutely free if you sign up for this coming cohort on June 3rd. Again, wellstarthealth.com slash program. And in other other news, Josh Lajani's mom and brother have written a plant based, a whole food plant based cookbook based on the traditional cuisine that they grew up with in Louisiana and Mississippi. It's called Pure Ambrosia. It's under three bucks at uh, Amazon Kindle. It's not yet available in paperback, but at some point it will be. But right now, if you want to get some great recipes, I've been seeing on social media lots of people posting their photos and their kudos for this uh, healthy and authentic Southern uh, cuisine. Um, you can just go find that on Amazon, Pure Ambrosia by uh, Mona, Ram Ramona and Dustin Lajani. Um, be a big help to, um, to go there, download the book and write a review. That would really help them out a lot as they uh, try to spread the word in their own community and everywhere. All right, that's it for pre-program announcements. So without further ado, Olivia Kelly, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here again. So we've got a little bit of an echo. We are in an abandoned uh, meeting room at uh, NC State, and we've just uh, completed a essentially a, pl a plant-based healthcare conference. Um, a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, we were in Washington, D.C. at a very different kind of healthcare conference. And full disclosure, you know, I'm uh, a founder, co-founder of Wellstart Health. And I kind of wanted to just uh, shoot the breeze with you and share with listeners kind of where you see healthcare going. I remember in the first interview um, that I posted it with you must have been two, two and a half, three years ago. I think the word visionary was in the title. So I still count on you to be a visionary. To, to <laughs> no kind of, pressure. <laughs> to kind of see the bigger picture. I, I, I've sort of been head down in, in plant-based nutrition and then head down in behavior science. And you're the one sort of with your head above the clouds looking at the, the whole vista of healthcare. And so kind of that's how I kind of want to frame this conversation. Like where, where do you see healthcare going? Um, and you know how how are we moving in that direction? Yeah, good question. Um, and it's funny that you say that I'm, my head's above the clouds because I always assume that everybody else knows what I know, but I guess that's not always the case. So, um, so a couple things come to mind when you ask that question. One is the number six and a T 
after it, which is $6 trillion, which is the, what is projected to be spent on healthcare in the U.S. by 2026. So, right, we're only seven years away from that. To give you context, we're right now at $3.6 trillion in healthcare spending annually, which is 20% of GDP, roughly. So, you know, not to bore you with the stats, but it's pretty alarming how much of our resources are going to healthcare, and it's totally unsustainable. And people keep saying that, but there is going to come a day where it's that day of unsustainability and the system breaks. The Medicare uh, fund is also going to run out. It's projected to run out, I believe, in nine years. So um, we, we have a real, you know, kind of come to Jesus moment right now that we have to have with ourselves in healthcare. And I mean, just as a nation, the habits that we have, the fact that here's another stat, 86% of uh, healthcare costs go to chronic disease management. And, you know, it's only getting worse. We've got, obviously, these huge epidemics of obesity, diabetes, heart disease, um, autoimmune conditions, and cancer, and things that, you know, many of which can be prevented, if not, um, you know, put into remission or reversed by lifestyle change. Um, and the problem, one of the problems and one of the things that really frustrates me is when you say to someone, oh, yeah, lifestyle change can really help fix these problems, you get people saying like, oh, yeah, well, everyone knows they need to eat better and go to the gym, but people don't do it. But what we're trying to do at WellStart is so much more than just getting people to eat better and go to the gym. First of all, many people are confused about what eating better means, um, but I think we all kind of have a universal idea of okay, maybe that's something that's uh, green and grows in the ground, um, or maybe that's something that doesn't come from a box. Um, and then move more. I mean, right now our baseline level of movement is so low, um, and so I think people are in this, you know, really living kind of against the grain of what we as humans were kind of meant to do, which is move, you know, eat mostly plants and uh, have community and we're very, very far in getting further from all of these things. And so I think that's one of the root causes of this healthcare catastrophe that we're in right now. Okay. So just to pick up on one, the, the stat about 6T, six, 6 trillion in seven years, yep. and we're now at three point something, yep. and, and that's 20% of GDP. So is the assumption that GDP is going to double also, or that our healthcare costs are going to be almost half of everything we, we produce and spend in this country? That's a great question. I don't know what GDP is you know, on track to, uh, to progress to and if, it's, if it tracks with the healthcare spend or not. But um, either way, I'm sure that healthcare spend uh, rate is surpassing the rate of GDP growth. Okay, so that's, that sounds pretty dire. And what, like, when you, go, when you think about the healthcare conferences that you go to and that we go to, mm-hmm. what, there's obviously a lot of allyship in terms of people seeing the problem, but we, we don't see people having sort of the same comprehensive view or the, or the radical root cause view that we do. Can you kind of maybe describe yeah. the, the, the solutions that people are proposing that are good ideas, but maybe aren't comprehensive or holistic enough? Sure, yeah. So um, I think there are quite a few benefits professionals out there who, you know, really do have their heart in the right place and want to bring uh, products and services to their customers, which would be, you know, 
larger employers or sometimes small employers, um, but the large employers obviously are where you can have more impact um, that want to bring services and products that are going to help them save money and help health plans um, or, or help protect them from health plans that are taking such a huge you know, amount uh, of their total money spent, like healthcare being the second biggest line item for many uh, companies after payroll, for example. Um, so I do think, and then there, I think there are a lot of brokers who probably don't care and are just happy to collect the uh, commissions they're getting from health plans. But I do think there are a lot who are saying, like, let's try to find other ways of doing this. Like, for example, reference-based pricing, where you go and look at a market and, you know, say it's orthopedic surgeons, and you look at who's charging what for a certain orthopedic surgery and say, like, well, this person has a great quality rating and is charging the fairest price. So this, you know, these are the ones that I'm going to recommend my client contract with. So that's one example. Um, bringing transparent, price transparency as well um, to employers and to employees so that they know what they're paying for because it's completely, people are going in really blind to, the, to what things cost. Um, so it's almost, it's almost like disruption. This kind of disruption in healthcare, it actually looks like normal business practices everywhere else. Like, right. like, like, let's have transparency around cost and quality. Yep, I think that's right. Exactly. Yeah, and I, I was just at a pitch day the other day, and one of the companies that was pitching, this guy was basically pitching this whole idea of like direct contracting, which is another thing that's sort of like reference-based pricing, where an employer can, you know. Uh, contract directly, like a lot of large companies like Walmart already do this. They'll con- they'll contract directly with a center of excellence like the Cleveland Clinic for a specific kind of surgery that they know is, you know, risky and costs a lot. But they they only send they'll actually pay to send an employee and that, a family member of that employee to the Cleveland Clinic to get the surgery, recovery, everything there, because even though that's costly, it's not nearly as costly as sending, um, you know, sending their employees somewhere else where they may be getting really poor quality and actually a much higher cost. So that's direct contracting. So the CEO of this company who was pitching was talking about um, having this direct contracting thing go all the way down the line, not just for expensive surgeries, but even for primary care, and trying to eliminate the middleman, which is the health plan, entirely. His whole vision is, let's eliminate health plans. Let's have you know, care, health care providers and, and consumers of health care, patients, work to, you know, directly with one another and eliminate the health plan middleman altogether. Um, I mean, I think it's a bold vision that's probably a a big reach, but I mean, there were many, many healthcare professionals and executives and investors in the room. And one person asked, like, is this needed? And eliminating health plans, raise your hand if you actually think that's needed. And virtually no one raised their hand. So I think people are just so steeped in the current system that it's really hard to envision that world where the health plan does not rule the day. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that when I think about a health plan, maybe its origins, it was in the mutual aid idea that if you need a procedure and you can't afford it that you should still have the right to get it because you're, you're going to pool you know a group of people are going to pool their risk right, right. Well, yeah so how, how if we eliminate health plans does that eliminate pooled risk or are there other ways to do that well um I mean, you could still have it, like as he was proposing, you could have some kind of catastrophic coverage, which is kind of how insurance 
the whole concept of insurance is for un- unforeseen events, right? Like whether you have that for life insurance or you have it for um, car insurance, there's a lot of reasons to have insurance for something catastrophic. But um, beyond that, um, yeah, I mean, pool, you, you might not need the pooled risk as much if you have tri- price transparency and you have a fair price being charged for a service and people can then select that service, which would probably also give people more um, of an impetus to worry about or care about their health because if, if you're not pooling, I mean, actually now you're pooling risk and you get a lot of people who are very unhealthy and so maybe that's bringing, driving the prices up. So maybe, you know, uncoupling that risk is a good idea. Mm-hmm. Okay. It sounds like the, 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 the basis of this whole view of, um, I guess they're, the, they're sort of the benefits hackers, people who are looking for price transparency, is that they're still assuming the same, roughly the same amount of care needed. Um, I think that's true, although I know that there is a recognition that there's a lot of overtreatment going on. So I don't know that they think the same amount of care is needed, but I think there is an idea that, at least for primary care, that people need, need primary care. And, of course, sometimes people do. But I think that their assumption is that, the, that primary care is going to be a bulwark against you know, unnecessary specialist care. And when you, say, when care. you say primary care, what do you mean? Well, what they mean is... Um, what they mean is your primary care provider, your family medicine or internal medicine doctor, who's going to be your, you know, your number one primary point of contact and, prior, you know, source of, of usual care, unless you have some, uh, some sort of specialist required condition. So, so the idea is that if we just all go get our checkups, go to our family doctors, our general practitioners, that that will allow us to like slay the monster when it's small, right? That, that's, <clears throat> that we can then have fewer people needing to progress to expensive conditions, that we don't, we don't need to have people go to the emergency room for care that they could have gotten much more efficiently and cheaply. Um, right, and I think the, also the idea is coordinated care, because even if someone does need a specialist, then their primary care, there's continuity that primary care provider is making sure that they are going to the right place, getting the right care, you know, coordinating things like medications. And, and so I think that that's another source of cost savings, or at least what they expect to be cost savings. And I'm sure that it would save costs over and above people going to the ER or people going uh, to urgent care or, you know, people just not having a usual source of care and then having some kind of emergency. But I think the health benefit hackers, the health Rosetta folks who are this you know, benefits group and provider groups who are trying to bring more transparency and reduce waste in healthcare, I think they're big, the big thing they're overlooking is uh, pre-primary care. People actually leveraging lifestyle change uh, to the point where they don't need as much care. We're not saying nobody should ever get care. People need it. And there's times where people legitimately really do need it. But, um, but they're ignoring the whole idea that lifestyle and environmental factors are causing so much of 
the chronic disease that is costing us the numbers we talked about earlier. So it's like a rational business person looks at the healthcare system with no, with no let's, let's say, knowledge of medicine itself, but just looks at, the, at the, the, the structural bones of the system and says, boy, this is crazy. There are so many misaligned incentives. There's so much bloat and waste and uncoordinated care. If we just come in and apply rational thinking to it, we can clean up a lot of the mess. And what they aren't doing is questioning the fundamental assumption that people need this care in the first place or, or, or much of it. I think that's exactly right. Yes. Um, and now some people would say, well, what are you talking about? Everybody needs primary care. And yes, people need well visits for things. Maybe they need vaccines. Maybe they need, um, you know, for, for certain people need prenatal care and things like that. But and maybe people, you know, get sick and they have to go to the doctor and that's normal and that's absolutely fine. But when sick is the norm and people need to go to the doctor because they need to, you know, renew their prescription for something that they probably wouldn't have to be on if they were actually leveraging lifestyle, that's where you really, that's a huge oversight. Okay, so that's, that's basically what we're, what we're doing here at this plant-based conference, right, is, uh, mm-hmm. is saying that, oh, gee, sick has become the norm. Yep. But it's not, it doesn't have to be that way. Right, so then we've got this whole other this sort of lifestyle medicine piece, and, and a lot of the lifestyle medicine people we talk to are essentially plant-based. Right, people. like they're focused almost entirely on nutrition for ver- for various reasons. Um, mm-hmm. But what what does this group have to add to the conversation? Do you think? Meaning the Peapod conference, or yeah, us? Peapod around you know just around this yeah. big the, the the big vision of healthcare that you that yes. you've laid out. Okay. So yeah, I think, um, I mean, nutrition, no question is, is a big one, but I think, um, when we talk about lifestyle medicine, we're also talking about several other factors, uh, physical activity, social support, uh, better managing stress. Um, so I think those are, those are really big ones that are part of lifestyle medicine and also need to be, you know, this, cohesive part of a plan to leverage lifestyle for mitigating and reversing disease. I mean, you have, um, we, we look at sickness and, you know, human ailments in kind of a siloed fashion. We don't look at the whole person. Um, and I think in, we need to be doing that when we're looking at how do we take lifestyle and make it medicine for us so that we don't need the medicines that our doctors are writing, wanting to write a prescription for. Mm. Yeah, last week I was talking with uh, Dr. Wayne Jonas, who has written a book about healing, and it's in the context of lifestyle medicine. He was pointing out, you know, from his perspective, he's not plant-based, so you know, he was pointing out the research about the Mediterranean diet being like one of the best studied diets, mm-hmm. and pointing out that the factor that nobody looked at in those studies was that when people were eating the Mediterranean diet, they were eating them as families. As right. opposed to, okay, I'm going to have my Mediterranean, you know, frozen, defrosted meal in the car with one hand. <laughs> that there's a lot more to, to us than just a bag of chemicals. Right. That's absolutely true. Yeah. And I think, um, I think you get to a point where it's really shades of gray. I mean, maybe the Mediterranean diet has 
you know, has a more of a focus on having olive oil and having fish and a plant-based diet or whole food plant-based diet uh, is more focused on reducing oils, but that's really because oil is a lot of empty calories. So, but it, I think you get to a point where you're kind of splitting hairs because um, like there was something on the health benefit hackers group where someone said something like, oh, well, you know, eating too much high sugar fruit can be bad for diabetics or something. And I was like, I think eating fruit, eating people eating too much fruit is the least of our worries. I mean, you start worrying about these little, you know, minutiae. And then the reality is people are not getting a serving of fruit or vegetables a day, let alone, you know, eating a full Mediterranean diet or a plant-based diet. I mean, it just, it's almost like it doesn't matter that much. Let's focus on getting people um, to be eating, you know, a, a few more servings of healing foods a day uh, would be a great start. Mm-hmm. And hopefully with somebody and not in front of a screen. Right. So um, everything you've said and what these two, two different groups are bringing to the table are is, is like eminently practical. It's hard to imagine anyone arguing against it. Yep. And yet there's a lot of obstacles. What do you, what do you see as the, the most present obstacles right now to systemic change? I think big food and big pharma come to mind, um, which, you know, are always like the very easy, ready kind of villains. But, um, but I think it's true that as long as you have hospitals and health centers with a Burger King on the first floor and then the cardiac uh, ward on the sixth floor, I mean, there's a huge problem there. Like we, uh, so I see that being a huge, huge barrier to change. I think a lot of people make poor choices, but I think the healthy choice is not the easy choice in most of our country. Um, And I think it's very, very difficult for people. I think uh, a lot of people, even physicians and other care providers might even blame or silently blame patients for making poor choices, but it's so hard to make the right choice that people are defaulting to poor choices. It's not, um, it's not an easy thing. So I see that being a huge obstacle. I also see see a huge obstacle in the fact that people don't uh, maybe know how impactful habit change and lifestyle change can be. So maybe it's really difficult to find something healthy, but why would you do it anyway if you don't know how, what an impact it can have and you know that you're taking some meds, you're not super happy about it, but at least you're kind of staying uh, you know, homeostatic at the moment with your disease. But, but it's so hard to get something. It's, it's, isn't it so hard and isn't it so expensive to get healthy food? Like, why would I do it? Of course, we know that there's a way to do it affordably and that there are a lot of hacks you can do to get it uh, relatively easily, even if you maybe live in a food desert. I don't want to use the word easily, but you can do it. It's doable. I think if more people knew uh, the impact that the, the meds they're taking had on them and they knew more of the upside potential that lifestyle change could have for them, they might do it. But I just don't think that that's very culturally accepted yet and there's so much infighting among the factions of eat this eat that don't eat this don't eat that different experts and of course media only inflates that these debates i think that's a huge obstacle as well well you think about all the cultural messages that tell us that changing your lifestyle isn't going to make a difference right so one of one of the obstacles we get with with our clients is 
they're going to take our message back to their physician and their physician is three times out of four going to disagree and going to, you know, and you can see the bubble being burst, the excitement, like, no, it's almost like they put a little curse on it. And the person gets deflated and says, you know, I guess it was too good to be true. Silly me for being so gullible. That's true. I think that's a, that's another piece of that obstacle. I mean, our own Dr. Sarai Stancic, our chief medical officer, and her story um, is a great example of that. I mean, when she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and her physician told her, don't bother, once she read all the this research that she'd unearthed at the time, and he was like, don't bother with that, just take your meds, like, don't be silly kind of thing. Um, well, now she's medication and disability free um, after using lifestyle change to manage her disease. So, I mean, that's one extraordinary tale, but she's not uh, an outlier among those who've tried it. The problem is the whole group of those who have tried it are a group of outliers in the general population, and it is partly. Um, I mean, if physicians are notoriously an unhealthy group in general. Don't They don't take great care of themselves, um, and I think they don't maybe recognize the benefits of lifestyle, but I do think that there's a growing um, percentage of the primary care kind of contingent that is recognizing that lifestyle is important, but they're just, they're overwhelmed, they're burnt out, they're very dissatisfied with their jobs because they spend more time typing at the EHR than they do looking and talking, looking you at You got to give us EHR. Oh, sorry, um, electronic health record. Typing See, on so that thing at the doctor's office, they're staring at that computer and they're not even looking at their patient. I mean, they're not doing what they probably initially went into medicine um, envisioning doing. Yeah, I have, I have met doctor friends who tell me the HR is essentially their like their their billing system. That they just they have to get everything right right away, or else they don't get paid. And so that that becomes the the focus of their attention, clinical attention as well. Like just make sure I got the right code. I've got all the right uh, dots, you know, T's crossed and I's dotted, so that I get paid and my office can stay in business. Right. Exactly. I think that's that's really true, and so I think there's a lot of dissatisfaction there, and um, it's really encouraging that like Dr. Stancic has been on this mission to get medical schools to have nutrition education and lifestyle medicine education, so that this up and coming generation of would of physicians to be can actually incorporate that into their practice. Um, unfortunately, I think. It's not enough. I mean, we have to do that. We also have to parallel process and try to reach out to uh, medical professionals that are currently delivering care and try to help get the message across to them. But I mean, there still really is this reaction, I think, among many uh, kind of in the mainstream that like lifestyle medicine is kind of woo-woo, voodoo sort of stuff, which is disheartening. And for me, the most impactful part of her, her documentary, Code Blue, is seeing the medical students light up when they discover that this is a career path, right? Because by the time they're in medical school for a couple of years, they've gotten a little bit wise. They're not, they're not naive about what they're in for. And they see attendings and residents and, and practicing physicians burning out, not providing solutions for people, but just sort of managing. And then they see this this branch where it's like, you know, it's it's technicolor. Everything else is sort of shades of gray, and like people are you know happy, and there's bluebirds singing, and you're cooking with people, and you're like they're having fun and having an impact, 
and doing what every doctor went into medicine to accomplish. Yep, I agree. Yeah, I, that's true. I mean, that is one of my favorite parts of Code Blue is is hearing from the med students about how excited they are about lifestyle, about teaching kitchens and um, the idea of learning to cook with patients and having gardens. And I mean, it's just, it's all stuff that maybe sounds fluffy to somebody who hasn't really been exposed to it, but um, but it's very meaningful. And for I think physicians at one point had that kind of relationship with patients where they were got to know the, the person and what they were dealing with in life, and that was easier to do when a doctor made house calls in a tiny town. Um, but, I mean, I think in a way there is a movement toward coming full circle in that way of in that sense of recognizing things like social determinants, which maybe has become an overused buzz phrase, the social determinants of health, but it is... Um, and, and which my listeners may not know. Yeah, which is basically um, <laughs> the social factors that drive people's health and well-being or the lack thereof. And um, now a lot there's a focus among health plans and a lot of the healthcare system to try to incorporate uh, those considerations. Like transportation to get to a medical visit, um, the money to buy food and the grocery store nearby to be able to buy it, um, you know, the ability to afford um, anything else that may contribute to health, the bill, the, you know, living in a neighborhood where you may not feel safe walking down the street, let alone going for a jog. Um, so all of those factors. But I think the fact that that's kind of coming into focus, though it may seem a little bit um, overplayed if when you're in the healthcare industry and you're hearing about it all the time. But um, but I think it's a good sign that it's happening. And I think the fact that physicians and med, med students who are now coming in are excited about looking at getting people fresh food, uh, getting people the social support that they need, uh, I think that's a good sign. Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of the, the chasm between public health and, and clinical medicine. Right. right? That a body comes into a clinical practitioner who looks at the body and looks at, you know, where the dings are, you know, as opposed to, I was talking with uh, Dr. Milton Mills, who's been a frequent podcast guest, and he was saying, like, if, you, if there's a car accident on the freeway, a multi-car pileup, like, the forensic people who come out will look at the skid marks, they'll, they'll examine the distance between the cars, the speeds they were probably going, um, you know, that, that they'll have a much more comprehensive picture of what led to it. So the idea of doctors, of medical professionals thinking about social determinants of health means that they're thinking about determinants of health as, as opposed to the model that most of them uh, have adopted, which is the body breaks down and thank God we got drugs. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that, I don't know how much of that is just like happening organically versus happening out of necessity because we have reached this critical point in terms of the level of chronic disease um, and, of course, healthcare spend, as we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, but either way, it's a, it's a good time for it to be happening. Um, I think it's the right time to be shifting focus. And, um, and I think that's one of the things that we're trying to do at WellStart is really um, help address root causes. And that's really the mission is to get people to, you know, change their tra health trajectory for the better using things that are 
um, available to them that they may not even know are available and le- letting them know about those things and then helping them with giving them the tools that they can use to change their habits and change their destiny. Yeah. So there's a, bunch of, there's a bunch of assumptions we have to disprove in order for people to engage with us, right? Like one of them is like you mentioned the medical assumption that people aren't going to change. It's right. too hard. People like their junk food too much. They like their couch and their Netflix too much. Um, where, do, where do we look? Because you, know, you mentioned outliers before, and I think our, our program is completely research-based, but a lot of it is research-based on outliers as opposed to looking at the, 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 the bell curve, mm-hmm. the, the average. How, what, what do you see as, as useful or effective in getting people to question that assumption that humans will not change? Well, I think smoking is a good example. Um, you know, I think smoking, I don't know what, was, what the percentage was of uh, Americans who smoked back in the 60s and 70s, but now it's below 20% um, after it became socially unacceptable to smoke. And before it, was social, it became socially unacceptable, it was widely accepted. Uh, doctors smoked and they even might even they they associated themselves with ads that were recommending certain brands. So um, I think it was just the norm. And it was obviously smoking is highly addictive, and it was probably at the time thought, well, of course, no one's going to quit. People love smoking; it's super addictive. And there was a huge amount of money behind it. There was a huge amount of money behind it, just like there is in big food and big pharmacy. So I think the difference, of course, is that once you quit smoking. You can pick up another habit like, oh, I don't know, chewing gum or skipping. Um, but with food, you really do have to continue to eat. So it's just about making different choices. But if those really unhealthy choices aren't as readily available or they're not, they, they're not always the default, um, then I think that can really start to move the needle. I mean, you have, you know, if, if in your company um, the vending machines are stocked with soft drinks and unhealthy snacks, well, that's a, a sort of a cultural norm that you're setting for your company, if, I mean, if you're, if you're in charge of the vending machines. Um, so I think things like that need to start changing. People, um, people, it needs to kind of become cool to eat healthier. Hmm. I was talking to a, a friend who, um, who works at a large local company that he says they spend a billion dollars a year on health care and he's a health nut and he said he went to the leadership and he says why do we have sodas m&m crispy cream in the in the break room why do we have pizzas every friday and donuts and the, their answer was well we can't tell people what to do mm-hmm. and his response was well you don't have cigarette machines isn't that telling them what to do to not <laughs> Right, but, the, but there is there is this sense that that um, that the food we're eating is normal, right? Like, like when Josh and I were uh, were in an Uber together um, yesterday, and we're and we're thinking about we were talking with the Uber driver who had to come way out. You know, I live way out in the boondocks, and the way Uber works is you get to, they have to say whether they want the job or not before they know where it is. Mm-hmm. So and for you know for it was like really out of the way when she ended up saying yes and we started talking about driverless cars and imagining like in a hundred years the way they would talk about driving now it's like and Josh was like riffing like you mean 
there were like lots of cars all going like 80 miles an hour right next to each other and there was people in them and like there was all these crashes like people died every day <laughs> like like looking at it from that perspective is like this is insane and you know because I, I was talking about a book i was reading about 18th century medicine with you know you needed strong orderlies to hold people down when you amputated or operated on them because there was no anesthesia it's like thank god i don't like there i'd like for people to be able to look at where we are today and say this is crazy yeah i mean hopefully we don't need that much uh you know lead time to have that perspective i think we can say it today looking at it right now but hopefully yes hopefully the general populace will gain more perspective um that what we're eating is not food but food products that isn't real food um that you know our lack of movement is i mean basically staying still is a kind of death and i mean people have to stay still sometimes but you know stillness is indicative of death and so we're basically <laughs> eating not real food and slowly dying by not moving um so yeah it's it's pretty dire uh, i'd say at the moment but i don't think people want it to be that way i just think a lot of times they may not see another option so are we well start are we looking just for like early adopters or like i don't i haven't studied how smoking changed i, I you know i think there was probably a lot of legislation around it mm-hmm. um i'm also thinking about like mothers against drunk driving and other other sort of campaigns that that shifted like what what's what's our play like where where yeah. where do you see leverage in in starting to move the needle if we're not going to get everyone to suddenly say okay i i've been eating crap and not moving and that's got to shift yeah that's a great question <laughs> i don't know that we're only looking for early adopters i think uh early majority as well at least um i think we um I think people are unhappy with the way things are going. Uh I mean people are me- people's mental health is not in in good shape and it's not cut off from their physical health. I mean it's all one complex system. We are all this one system. Um and so when people are eating these empty sugary calories made from foods that are food products that are engineered, that's not going to help them feel help feel better mentally or physically. Um I don't think people are happy with that. I mean, they're doing it because maybe they don't like see another option, but I think my hope is that we can show enough people that there is another really viable option that can actually be super gratifying that will be able to help millions of people who right now may think that they don't have that much hope. um or that their baseline is kind of normal when if they experience a new um elevated baseline they'll realize and this happens you hear people say this all the time people who've gone through the program people who've made lifestyle change say wow i didn't realize how crappy i was feeling until i started feeling better it was like my norm was a crappy feeling day every day um and so i think i mean that's a shame i think there's a lot of you know we have in public health um quality adjusted life years and disability adjusted life years um i think if you're looking at how long we live now but you adjust it for low quality then our lifespan's probably not quite as long as it would seem on paper hmm 
Yeah, I guess one one of the things that we see from people who go through and starts achieving movement and success is that they want more. Mm-hmm. Right, that, that all of these other areas, they suddenly realize, you know, like you give you give someone a sip of water, and then they're like, "Oh my God, I was thirsty." Right. Exactly. Yeah, I was thirsty. And I didn't even know it. Um, yeah. So, and I, I think community is also a really, really big part of that. Um, I think people are um, very much alone. We don't have the social support structures that we had, you know a couple, even a couple of generations ago, and that there are still in many other parts of the world. And I think that's a big part of it as well. I mean, you mentioned earlier, like you can, you know, eat your Mediterranean meal and that's great, but if you're eating it like in the car half frozen, well, that's, that might not, it might not actually confer the benefit that it would confer in a real like blue zone where people are uh, eating with family, going for an after-dinner stroll. I mean, there's so many different factors, but we really do try to address all of that, all of those factors. And I think it's not an all-or-nothing proposition. It's just all of these things working in concert and making small steps in that direction in each one of those disciplines of of lifestyle. Um, mm. So you mentioned small steps, and you know we certainly act on that philosophy and we believe in progress mm-hmm. and at the same time one one of the obstacles is there is a giant industry called wellness that has probably a deservedly bad rap mm-hmm. for asking people to take only small steps and and stop there how do you see I know we, I mean, we talk about this a lot sort of strategically how do you see we've got this vision of what a in our culture is considered an extreme way of life because we're not mainstream. We're, we're, we're going against the mainstream in terms of movement, in terms of food, in terms of social connection, in terms of sleep. And yet all these companies have touted wellness in terms of, you know, take the stairs, not the elevator. Uh, right. right. Yeah. So how, how, how do you see navigating that chasm? Between, you know, is, is it a compromise or is it a strategy? I mean, I think that a lot of wellness programs have their heart in the right place saying, take the stairs and drink more water. I mean, of course, those are good things. But if they're not going to make a material difference, if they're not leading someone on a path to getting better, you know, materially better, then it's kind of fluff, uh, right? I mean, people who are going to take the advice of their wellness program to take the stairs, they may, A, already be taking the stairs. B, start taking the stairs and then kind of give up taking the stairs after a month. Or C, they're going to do it once in a while, but it's not going to make a difference in their health. Like maybe they burned a couple extra calories a day, but they're still gaining three pounds a year. So um, so I think when we look at small steps, we're not talking about just do a little thing differently today and isn't that cute. I think we're looking at make a small step each day toward a bigger change. We're interested in helping people make significant material market change in their lives. Um, of course, we love any you know positive change anybody wants to make, but I think what we're about is material change that people want to make in their lives, and they're ready to kind of roll up their sleeves and, and make those changes. And with the recognition that the way they got to where they are, there's no judgment, there's no shame in it. We're all where we are, where we where we start, and you know, but we want to finish somewhere different, and we know that's going to take some work to get there. And I think that we're not shying away from the fact that 
um, there is work to be done and that we're going to let everybody know it because that's the only time you really achieve anything that's valuable is putting some work in. So we're not going to say, just eat your cheeseburger, but just eat it more slowly and mindfully and then you're good. Or like some certain other wellness programs, or I shouldn't say other, um, are doing. Yeah, and one of the things I notice as, as a coach is that very often my vision for clients is not in alignment with their vision for themselves because their vision for themselves is too small. And so, in, in a sense, I imagine myself coaching and being hired by and being employed by their future self that I can see. Mm -hmm. right? so, so it's like if someone's just coming and I tell them, you know, you could be running marathons, you could be, um, you know, down to 107 pounds, you could, like all these things I see in a person, they would run away screaming if they thought that's where I was going to take them, or if they thought that was like, you know, either, either because they think, oh my God, marathons and not eating cheeseburgers, that would, life would be too horrible. I just want life to be good enough that I can have my cheeseburger and not die. Or they're thinking, I've been promised so many things by so many programs and so many weight loss diets and books and things that I'm tired of being disappointed. Or yeah, I believe this works for some people theoretically, but I'm too lazy, undisciplined, unfocused, it would never work for me. And so what we ask them to do is to make some tiny, you know, consistent change that then like moves them one rung up the ladder so now they can see a little farther. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, um, that's what's really different about what we do is we're, I mean, we're not only a lifestyle medicine program, but we're first above all a behavior change program. So if somebody wanted to change a behavior that was you know, something that wasn't positive and we didn't want them to do, we could still probably help them do it. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to come up with an example right now because I don't want to advocate for anything um, negative. But um, I think another thing is that we, um, you know, there, we're in this minefield of really difficult and poor choices that are exploding in front of us every day, whether it's a dietary choice or a sedentary choice or a um, stress-producing choice, whatever it may be. So I think, um, or the choice to, you know, be on social media for an hour when you could have maybe been connecting with someone, like, in a more real way. Um, so I think letting people know that there is this minefield out there, and we're going to help you navigate that minefield, and we're going to show you s sort of the map um, and of what you know, what which pitfalls, where the pitfalls are, you know, what to avoid and what to proactively do to get through it intact and thriving. Um, I think that's a big part of what we do because we recognize that, like the human, you know, form and person is programmed to do the things that we are now actually doing to our great detriment. Uh, so I think I think that's a way of looking at things a little bit differently than saying, okay, you're, you got, you've been making bad choices, you've been failing, let's succeed now. It's more like, yeah, of course you've been making bad choices. Any human would in, this, in these conditions. Let's show you how to navigate things better and how to win against uh, all of these uh, forces that are after you. So let's talk about um, working with employers. Right? So... Um 
it's it's different than just working with people. You know, originally, a lot of people who came to us, uh, at least you know, to me and Josh, when we were doing big change, were people who were already on board theoretically. They you know either podcast listeners had read one of my books or followed Josh on social media, and they were coming in and their issue was, oh, I really want to live this lifestyle. I believe in it on so many levels, and I'm failing. Mm-hmm. And when you're working with employer groups or people who come from health plans, they're you know the great unwashed. They're not primed for plant-based. They haven't been tenderized by you know an SE lecture. Right. Um, what do you, what do you see as the way in to start getting people to move in this direction without you know scaring them off or, or you know triggering their immune their their psychic immune system <laughs> yeah i think i think there's a couple of things i think one is definitely a little bit of science the right amount not too much and not too little um just science on what lifestyle medicine has the potential to do but also this, the emerging science of the microbiome, um, and you know, just very compelling uh, science that comes out every day about, like, just the study that just came out about, um, you know, I think it was a, basically a low-fat, plant-centered diet for preventing breast cancer. And that was a huge study among like many, many thousands of women over many years. Um, I mean, these things come out and. But they don't get the same press as like eating butter is great for you because of course people just want to hear that eating butter is great for you. Um, but but anyway, I think um, so. The right amount of science, but then also I think giving them something to go toward rather than something to move away from. And I think that framing is really important. People are afraid of giving things up, and I think we're not asking them necessarily to give anything up, but in running toward more positive choices that are going to be better for them, they invariably do end up giving up things that are, are detrimental. So I think that's a big piece is making it, you know, not so binary, not this all or nothing proposition. You know, it's not a, it's not a religion. It's not a, you know, a cult. It's just about getting more whole plants on your plate every day than you're getting now. Let's start there. Uh, we've had we have had some recent participants who have said, "Oh wow, I ate all plants today, and I felt great. I'm going to do that again." Um, I think if you can get people to kind of take the leap and try it, and let them know that it's not they're not putting themselves in a box and they're not like signing a contract, um, that it's compelling for them once they get um, privy to some results, which happens quite quickly, as anyone who's had a whole food plant based day knows. Yeah, and it's it's interesting how you know there is still a wrenching giving up that happens for people. But I was I was talking to to Josh about this because um, another friend was saying like he wants to give up sugar entirely, but he, he would have to mourn the fact that you know his daughter makes these delicious sugar cookies and she loves sharing it with him. And if, you know, and if he has one, he goes full out binge and it makes him crazy. He's so he's like, I, in order to be happy, I've got to. Give, and I have to like mourn this loss with my daughter. And I asked Josh about it. Like, did he have to mourn all his cultural traditions that he ended up giving up? And he said, "Yeah, but I didn't give them up first. I had, I was, I become, a, I became a runner. I became passionate about other things, and then I had to give them up." Mm-hmm. So, so like, it wasn't like it was, it was easy, and there was no 
there was no struggle and there was no gripping the old, but it wasn't, it was, it was being done autonomously rather than having someone else sort of pull it away from you and le leaving you with nothing. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I have to let go of the past in order to fully embrace this future that is so amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. I mean, like going to a family barbecue and having, you know, all your relatives are there grilling meat or whatever, and you're used to that. And that's like what you're comfortable with. And that's what everyone feels good being together and grilling meat. So how are you going to handle that if you're not um, wanting to do that anymore? Um, but I don't think, I think for a lot of our folks who are just starting out, it's really more about like, what do you want to do? How far do you want to take it? Does it have to be, you know, a, you're 100% giving something up because that's the only way you can do it? Or do you want to try to do baby steps? Maybe you still go to the family barbecue, but then the rest of the time you're, you know, eating plant-based. I mean, it's, I think it's different for everyone, but ultimately I think people who get a taste of what a healthy lifestyle and and whole food plant-based nutrition and, and physical activity and all the other things uh, feels like, then they're not going to want to have the meat at the barbecue. And then they will have to probably sort of close that chapter. And maybe there is some kind of, you know, reckoning there because you're not going to want the barbecue anymore. Um, but that not to say that that's an easy process and maybe it's a, you know, having to bring something else or having to have a serious talk with the family or maybe in some cases not even going. Um, I'm sure that those things are all, you know, difficult choices that people may need to make down the road. But I think, you know, sometimes thinking about ripping off the Band-Aid is actually the most painful part. Mm. And actually doing it isn't that painful. It's the anticipation of doing it that can be so agonizing for people. Yeah, and there's a, there's a place, there's a time in which the agonizing choices aren't that agonizing. They're just, they're sad, but they're inevitable. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think you're absolutely right that front-loading those and telling people, okay, now you've got to do this. Like, here's the program. If you want to be part of our program, you've got to eat like this, or you've got to do this kind of amount of exercise or this intensity. I think that's where people, they're, first, they're attracted to that because now we're taking away responsibility from them. Right. But ultimately, they've never established their own intentionality and accountability, and so they have a good reason to fail. Mm -hmm. Whereas, whereas we're, we're saying the moment will come or hopefully will come where you simply, you know, can't wear your sword anymore because you're a pacifist, you know, even though you love your sword, that you've moved beyond it. And let's, but let's start with the simple, easy things that will give you positive, powerful, positive feedback mm -hmm. so that you want to do it tomorrow. Because like nothing is ever nothing that I've ever done that's good for me has ever given me as much powerful positive feedback as like a Kit Kat bar. <laughs> like, those things are effing amazing. Right? Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying for sure, and I think a lot of people would agree with you. I think, uh, but I do think what you're saying is right that there, it's the small wins in the beginning that get people, you know, feeling like they can accomplish something and make change, and they're getting somewhere, and then. You know, everybody has their own path, um, and we. And I think it, it does take away personal responsibility to give people a checklist of what they need to do and not do, and give them you know very very tight boundaries. I think it's more empowering to help people find their way and giving them the tools to to do that. And 
you know, hand-holding them along the way when they need it and letting, stepping back and letting them fly when, when they want to do that. So I want to change direction a bit here. And I'll, I get a lot of appreciation for this podcast from, from people who are very grateful for the guests that have been on, the information. There's, you know, if you listen to the end, you'll hear there's like, I don't know, maybe 100 or so patrons already. Um, people get contact me behind the scenes. How, if people are into this mission, how can they help us? Um, I think there's a bunch of different ways. I mean, uh, I think people who work for companies and feel like they have some ability to talk to their benefits department or talk to their HR department about bringing us in. Um, we've just started an exciting uh, new program, too, where we're doing in-person immersions uh, at company headquarters for employees and then um, kind of priming them for success and building community and then onboarding people to the program. So I think that's one great way to kind of start and introduce WellStart to their companies. Um, of course, people in a decision-making capacity at companies as well, um, you know, ought to talk to us and consider um, giving us a try. And we're, we can definitely make the, um, the economic case for it as well and happy to talk about that. Um, you know, or people, people have friends and family that are at, at companies um, who may potentially be interested in, you know, making a dent in their healthcare costs and in the health impact of their, of their workforce. Um, as well, I mean, anybody who's working, working at a health plan or has a cousin who, do, who does, um, that's another area where we can really be helpful. And we're currently working with our first health plan customer at the moment. So describe a little bit about what that looks like. Um, so we're working uh, in a partnership with a company called Solera Health. We're working with Blue Shield of California, offering um, a weight management and a diabetes program to their members. And um, we're really excited about that. We have um, a number of people uh, who are employees of, of Blue Shield of California currently in the program and signing up. And then um, in a couple of weeks, we'll be launching with actual plan members. So... Um, we're excited to have uh, to be able to make an impact uh, among plan members, and we're really excited to be working with Blue Shield of California because they are definitely uh, visionaries in the health plan space in that they are the first health plan member of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and they've you know, openly not only recognized that lifestyle medicine is something um, that should be at the forefront of their members care, but they've also you know, really put their money where their mouth is, and they're actually partnering with lifestyle medicine programs to bring those to their members. So it's exciting to be a part of that initial how, launch of that. How does that help them? How does that help uh, the plan? The Blue Cross, yeah, Blue uh, Shield. Well, I mean, I think if they're actually helping people maintain a healthier lifestyle, then their members are going to be less dependent on care. So that so helps the plan directly. They make more money, right? If, they're peop- if they don't have to keep paying for prescriptions and procedures. That's the idea. Right. Like, so, so this is what you're talking about with pre-primary. Like instead of paying the primary care physician to keep prescribing the metformin and the Bayeta and the Lipitor and then moving on to stents and bypass, the Blue Shield gets to keep all that money and keep people well. 
Yeah, right. And also, it's I think it's an important differentiating factor for them, uh, for you know, em- employers who are choosing a plan or individuals who are choosing a plan. If there's a plan that's giving them the opportunity to lead a better lifestyle and improve their health. I mean, that's a key differentiator. Not all health plans are going to be offering something that uh, of such great value as you know as they're offering WellStart and a number of other programs that are going to help people and not only help them but give them some choices and match them to what they might be interested in. Like if they want to work specifically on sleep, they're offered uh, a couple of sleep programs, and there's a lot of different things that they're um, able to to leverage. Gotcha. Are, are we looking for investment too? Yes, we're looking for investment. <laughs> we so we raised a seed. I'm really leading here, right? <laughs> we raised a seed round of funding, and now we're uh, we're hoping to raise an institutional round uh, soon, probably within the year. But um, in the and meantime, what, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? Uh, that means like go, raising VC money um, early 2020. But in the meantime, we need to keep the lights on, and uh, we're doing a research study, and we also need to fulfill on our Blue Shield contract and make sure that we have, um, you know, uh, capacity, coaches and dietitians, and the technology that we need to get everybody um, into the program and going through it. Um, so, uh, and we need to pay the people who work for us, some of them whom are poor, very poorly paid and some of whom are not paid at all. Um, so... Yeah, so we need the money for all those legitimate reasons and just to meet these milestones that are then going to allow us to get institutional funding and hopefully really scale the company, but the company is part of a larger vision for bringing lifestyle medicine to the masses and making it the norm in, in rather than what we currently have, which is, of course, ex- pretty much exclusively sick care. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're saying that uh, we're going to do our best to uh, make the investment financially worthwhile, and this is a mission play. This is a total mission play. I mean, that's, what's the, coo- that's what the coolest thing about our little company is, I think, is that everybody is completely 100% mission-driven, and we're all in it completely for the right reasons. You know, we're, we're in it because we really want to make an impact. We want to make a difference. That's, I'd say, more than scaling uh, for financial reasons. We want to scale for social impact and health impact reasons. Very cool. So, so thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time. I'd love to be able to ask you these questions in an interview format so that you're not really sure whether I know the answer or not. Like <laughs> when I say something like, what's an institutional round? We can, we can assume that I actually know. So this is my, this is my, sec- my secret way of getting up to speed on the, uh, the business parts of the business. Oh, very, very clever. Uh, any, anything else we didn't talk about that you want to share or go out with? Um, I'd say, like, in addition to, you know, asking listeners for help potentially with investment or uh, potentially handing us off to a, a future client, um, I think just spreading the message of lifestyle medicine um, in general is helpful to us, too. The more your Uncle Bob knows about it, the better, the more anyone who will, I know, I'm sure many of your listeners are already shouting from the rooftops and, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but, hmm. um, but yeah, so and any, anything that you do in that vein is, is helping the mission. And, um, also we have, you know, individuals going through the WellStart program too. So anyone listening who, who knows someone who might be a good fit for that, send them our way and, um, let us know just what, if you have any ideas for how we can, 
you know, make this relevant to people um, everywhere. Yeah, and I said, you know, so maybe shouting from the rooftop, but maybe, you know, being that change. Like you be the person that people are like, holy cow, what did you do? How did, how did, you, how did you get to be this fabulous? Exactly. Right? Like wait, yep. wait for them to come to you. We have, uh, you know, one of, one of our early cohorts named themselves the Lighthouse Gang uh, from, a, from a quote that someone brought in, which is the lighthouse doesn't go around looking for ships to save. Right. right. Just so we let's, let's all keep shining. If you need help shining, of course, there's Well Start Health. We'd be happy to uh, to take you through a uh, a, a B two C consumer based program. Yep, um, absolutely. At the moment, we are we we got a special. Right? I feel I feel like I'm on like uh, <laughs> QVC or something. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful Bluetooth scales and blood pressure cuffs. That's right. You, you are included them. in our B two C program now. So if you sign up for the program or if your um, cousin Sally signs up, or you or she will get um, a Bluetooth-enabled scale and blood pressure cuff that you can connect with our app and track how you're doing in those realms, and it's pretty cool. Yeah. And do we have any, like, plates from the Franklin Mint or, or <laughs> zirconium bracelets? Not yet. No. Okay. We'll work on that for next time. All right. Well, so we're... Uh... <laughs> We're, we're slowly figuring this out. So, uh, <laughs> Olivia, thank you for everything. Thank you for your leadership and inspiration and vision. And thank you for taking the time today. Thank you. All right. So, Olivia Kelly, Well Start Health, in the can, another podcast episode wrapped and delivered. I hope you found this interesting and useful. It's hard for me to tell when I talk about Well Start Health whether anybody else cares the way I do, whether this is useful and interesting or whether this is just me and Olivia getting into really deep inside baseball. So I would love your feedback if you found this interesting and useful. Um, and I guess I would love your feedback if you didn't. Either way, it, it helps me produce a show that people want to listen to and get value from. So this is show number 325, which means you can find it and the show notes at plantyourself.com slash 325. If you're new to the show, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of episodes in the archives, and you can find them all at plantyourself.com. Uh, apparently, the most of the podcast players and feeds only go up to the last 50. So if you want the good old stuff, you've got to go to plantyourself.com and you can listen and download from there. If you'd like to support the show, there are so many ways to do it, and some of them are completely free and easy, like go to iTunes and leave a review. Um, I have a review this week from, let's take a quick look, uh, from Bubblegum Man 2 says, well done, evidence-based and interesting, focuses on general health and wellness in addition to plant-based nutrition, highly recommended. Thank you. I've got a, also a podcast review from Phil Monk saying, good program, oh, it's honest and forward thinking is the title. Good program, really appreciate the perspective, time sensitive. Oh, thank you very, very much. Okay, so what else is going on in uh, Garden? No, I hadn't talk, finished talking about how you can help. In addition to that review on iTunes, you can become a patron of the show and become a financial supporter because the Plant Yourself podcast is free for those who can't afford it because it's supported by those who can. So you can go to Patreon, do a quick search for Plant Yourself, and join the team of monthly contributors and supporters to keep this thing going. What else? Garden News. Oh, my gosh, the garden is doing amazing. I have been ODing on Gumi 
berries. Gumi, G-O-U-M-I, also known as Eliagnus multiflora. I looked that up and I practiced saying it so that I would impress you. It's a nitrogen fixing berry. It's really hard to describe what it tastes like. My son says it tastes like jelly, which I guess uh, kind of does. They've got these tiny little berries that have turned crimson and they are just delicious. They have these little pits in them and uh, they're a, a great deal of fun to have as the, the kind of early fruit in the garden. We're also getting huge leafed basil. Uh, which my wife is making into pesto. And we've got some snap peas, sugar peas that have uh, become ready. And yesterday I ate my first blueberry. So lots of stuff going on in the garden. We've added new beds and uh, I put about five or six inches of wood chips on top of a new bed. So I'm imagining in two years, maybe 2021, I will be letting you know about the food that we are producing off of those new beds. You got to play the long game when you are trying to regenerate land for agriculture. In running news, the plantar fasciitis is still a pain in the um, heel. I haven't quite figured out how to get rid of it. It doesn't so much hurt when I run, but it really hurts the next morning, um, did 10 miles on Memorial Day, real slow pace. Uh, I think tomorrow or Thursday, I'll do my hill sprints. And then weekends are for ultimate Frisbee practice. My team triaged is going to Great Grandmasters Regionals in Atlanta. A third weekend, I believe, second weekend, some weekend in June for the chance to play in the national finals in July in uh, Aurora, Colorado. So um, there's there's all that kind of running going on. All right, well, let's say thank you to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use Sabali Don, the Dance of Peace, as the theme music for this show. Check out willridenauer.com for more of his beautiful West African choral music. And of course, thanks to the Plant Yourself podcast patrons, as in... Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Morrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanola, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Hammer, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Fronsek, Jeanette Benham, Gila Serte, David Donahue, Blair Cyborg, Dorona Vizo, Gio and Carol Argentati. Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, The Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corcoran, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Rudless, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rosland, Ayat, Julie Lang, Home Hedegaard, Isa Tuzan Wakani, Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Avivilla L. Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divitt, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fenny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Humble, Deb Casilla, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Corny, Stephen Leaven, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Cartz. 
Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gullett, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, and Joan Borstein for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. So if you appreciate the Plant Yourself podcast and would like to help support the mission of the show, there's a few easy ways to do it. One is to just go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Let other people know about it. Give us some stars. Give us some love. And that really helps us be found by more people. Something else, of course, you can do is let someone know about this podcast, someone uh, who you think would benefit. Send them maybe a couple of episodes that you think would uh, pique their interest or just uh, ask them to subscribe in general. And third, you can join arms and become a patron, a financial supporter of this show. You may have noticed that there's no advertising in the show and it's free for everyone and it's supported, paid for by those who can afford it. So if you would like to make a one time contribution or an ongoing monthly pledge, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. All right. Time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Strong Fronsek, Jeanette Benham, Gail Assert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Toronto Vizo, Gio and Carol Argitati, Jody Friesner, Ruthann Thunderbrook, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harpers and Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, The Plant, Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon, Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Colm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzumak, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis... Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikoski, a plant powered for health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Krep, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divid, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Lehman. Patty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Carson, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>